Uh, could you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8? If you've got a, got a smartphone, scroll along. and Hebrews chapter 8. Last week we, we did an overview of all of Hebrews uh, chapter 8. And if you weren't here, don't uh, worry too much. We saw that Jesus Christ had become the high priest of a new covenant. We saw that the Old Covenant was not faultless and had become obsolete by virtue of the new and by virtue of Jesus Christ's new place as high priest at the right hand of the Father. So this week, I want us to begin, uh, as uh, as I expected, I start getting into Hebrews and I start writing and I realize I've got too much stuff. We're going to look at the four promises of the New Covenant, and of course, we're not looking at all four of them today. Um, So I want to look at some of the implications of these four promises of the New Covenant, which we find in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, and look at some of the implications of them for the the Christian life and and for the church uh, today. And really, much of the rest of the book of Hebrews, from this point onwards, is going to be an application of this new covenant and how it affects our worship and how it affects our lives of people of the new covenant community. The new covenant that Jesus administers is based on better promises than the old and therefore gives his people the best possible gracious relationship with God. So today we're going to look at how the the New Covenant fits into the book of Hebrews and the plan of salvation. And so that's so you don't have to just freak out and realize, like, I'm lost. I don't understand any of this. We'll we'll tie it all together. And then I want us to look at the very first promise of the New Covenant, which is, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay? So we're going to do it today. And... um, Let's read uh, from verse uh, 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. One thing I'm trying to be constantly aware of is the need to not get lost in the detail of this one letter. And so we're constantly asking the question, why, when we read something? We're constantly asking the question, so what? And I'm asking myself those things repeatedly uh, throughout the week, talking to myself in my office, really. Um, Why, so what? And that's to help us just not lose sight of what's going on. So what I want us to do is try and uh, put some of these pieces together uh, in the book of Hebrews, right? The Hebrews begins by saying something uh, very uh, interesting. It says in Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That is, in a sense, saying, that Jesus Christ is a prophet, that Jesus Christ is the great prophet prophesied about by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, and that he speaks a message on behalf of God to his people. And then it goes on to say, verses 3 and verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And from there, that is the thesis statement of Hebrews, and it develops the fact that Jesus Christ is prophet. He is a priest who brings people to God, and he is also a king who rules over a kingdom. Jesus is king and priest, and all of this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So by by virtue of his ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, Jesus is able to be this great high priest. And as a result of that, the writer says in Hebrews 7 verse 12, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And that is being used to say that the old covenant is no more, and instead we have now the mediator, the head of a new covenant. Used the definition last week of a a biblical covenant by Dr. Chris Corhey. He says this, A covenant in which God is one party is an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. I'll say that again. A covenant in which God is one party is an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. That God enforces this covenant relationship with the other parties or party of the covenant. Covenants, therefore, throughout the Bible are different. Richard Barcella says on this point, he says, Divine covenants are concerned with the benefits that God bestows, the type of communion people may have with God, and then the means to obtain those things. 
When divine, divine covenants demand conditions of obedience on man's part, they can be viewed as covenants of obedience or covenants of works. On the other hand, when a divine covenant provides all it requires, it is a covenant of grace. Do we see the distinction? Do this and live. Live, freely live. I give to you what you need. The new covenant is wonderful, and it is a covenant of grace. And now Jesus is not just the high priest of this new covenant. He is also, we're told, a king. Constantly think about what it would be like for a king to not have a kingdom without people, right? Kings have kingdoms, do they not? And kingdoms have territories and subjects, people. Can you imagine someone says, I am the king, and over no one at all? It would make no sense. It would be ridiculous. Now, let's start tying this together. The kingdom, the rule of the king, is administered through covenant. The kingdom is governed or administered through a covenant. They are the terms of the great king. Essentially, a covenant is like a constitution where it lays out the terms of the great conquering king for his subjects. The kingdom of Israel was administered through the old covenant. And there was a sense in which there was also the, the Abrahamic covenant, which helps form it, and the Davidic covenant, which makes uh, the place of the king in the kingdom uh, sort of sure in God's eyes. And the king had a special place in all of this. The king of Israel was supposed to make sure that God's law was obeyed and the covenant was kept. And that is why when you're reading the Old Testament, you see these stories of a good king, things go well in Israel because they're keeping, keeping the covenant uh, to a better degree than others, and then they get a bad king and they're running off serving Moloch or Baal or whoever else, and they're not obeying God's law, and things go badly for them. Very, very simple uh, in that regard. The fullness, however, of the kingdom of God, which is something spoken of repeatedly throughout the New Testament, even though it's only mentioned three times in the Old, the fullness of the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ the King, the Messiah. And if that's his reign, how does he govern? How does he administer his kingship? He does it through the terms of the new covenant. We start to see how all these things fit together and why it is necessary for Jesus to be a king and a priest. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He had to become incarnate to identify as a priest representing the people. Jesus had to earn or merit the blessings of the new covenant. That's why he had to live. He died as a priestly sacrifice, was raised in vindication or triumph over the curse of sin, 
having been cursed under the wrath of God in our place. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, so it says in Deuteronomy 21. The gospel is therefore, think about this, the gospel is therefore the message of a king's victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the message of a victorious king. The gospel is therefore the good news of a new covenant through which we are reconciled to God and the great king. See how this is fitting together? These are not words for a systematic theology textbook. These are not words that are just meant to be in the Bible and and breathed over. They fit together into the greatest story ever told. The message of the the new covenant and the gospel, as we see in uh, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when Peter gets up to preach, creates a community who believe in this gospel and are then baptized to show that they are disciples of the great king to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. Baptism is therefore the sign of inclusion into the new covenant community. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the New Covenant's blessings, which is why Jesus says in Luke 22.20, this is my blood of the New Covenant given for you. And so we've given baptism and the Lord's Supper, two signs of the covenant of the great King. Jesus Christ is therefore the prophet who speaks a message of salvation in his name. He is priest of the new covenant and he is king over a kingdom and he is prophet, priest, and king and therefore he is better than all other saviors. In fact, there is no other name under heaven whereby which we must be saved. That is how it all works together. And that is what the writer of Hebrews has been saying up until this point. And as I said, the rest of the book is merely an outworking of all these truths. All right? So let us then look at the promises of the new covenant. They are found in verses 10 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 8. Do you see them? He says, this is the covenant. I am not going to touch right now on the fact that it is made with the house of Israel. Okay, I don't want to trigger everyone uh, in one go. Um, but we'll talk about that at some point. There's a direct relationship between these four promises. They constitute a unit. And if you start looking and start thinking, and this is, a good, this is a good thing for you, maybe you've got a morning devotion. Think about how each one of the promises of the new covenant relies upon the other and how they are necessary together that you cannot have one without the other. What we're going to do is look at the very first one, found in verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The first promise is essential to understanding the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. 
and therefore the Christian life. So I want to spend most time on it, and I want to make some applications off it. Let's ask ourselves the question. We've got the law being written on the hearts and the minds under the terms of the New Covenant. We must ask ourselves the question, where was the law written in the Old Covenant made at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people of Israel? Where was it written? You're thinking? Exodus 24.12 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And if you've seen that movie with Charlton Heston, Moses comes down the mountain with two tablets of stone, right? Or your children's Bible. Finds up Aaron is messed up in a huge way and smashes them and had to go get replacement copies, right? We, we, we're tracking with that? The Ten Commandments were given to Moses on tablets of stone written with the very finger of God. Many people will call this the moral law. The moral law. The remaining laws, around 600 of them, are civil laws for the, for, for the governance of Israel and the land, and uh, ceremonial laws regarding uh, sacrifices and, and, and worship. Those were written by Moses with his own hand. There's a difference here. Exodus 24.4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So, even under the terms of the Old Covenant, you have a distinction. All of that law is the law used to govern the terms of the Old Covenant. God writes ten of those laws, The rest of it is dictated to Moses, and he writes it with his own hand. The great problem with this whole setup is that there was something of a works principle operating in the Old Covenant. Israel's place in the land was governed by their obedience to the law of God. And Hebrews tells us, specifically in chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, that they were able to break that covenant because it was not faultless. And as a result of their breaking that covenant by being disobedient, they were exiled from the land. They had broken that covenant. And that is why Jeremiah chapter 31, the promise of the new covenant, was given at the beginning of the exile in Babylon. That's what that verse, Jeremiah 29, uh, 11, it says, you know, the plans and promises I have for you, plans for a future and a hope. You know that, that verse that we all have in a coffee mug somewhere? Right? right? The verse before that says, after 70 years, I will come to you. And then it says, and I, for I know the plans I have for you. That this was at the start of the exile in Babylon. And this is the context then of Jeremiah 31, the new promise. They're being told, you will go back into your land and you will receive a new covenant. The problem with an external law written on tablets of stone, even though it's written with the finger of God, the problem with an external law 
is that it does not give you the ability to keep it. An external law doesn't allow you and doesn't give you the power to keep the law. How many of you have seen a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch? You know what, you know what we do when we see that kind of law? We go, oh, it's wet, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's what we naturally do. The heart is deceitful above all things, you know, it just, it just is. There's a problem with an external law. So what law does God write on the hearts of believers? Does he write the laws related to the Levitical priesthood and, and the sacrifices and the Day of Atonement? Does he write those laws on the heart of believers? What about the laws about lepers uh, in Leviticus, that the lepers need to be put outside the camp and then there's a seven-day stand-down period before they can come in um, uh, once, once they're healed and then the priest needs to, to pray over them and give them okay for them to return. Is that law written on the hearts of believers? Because that's part of the law of the Old Covenant. What about the command to not eat pork or, or shellfish? Favorites of atheists on Facebook. Stupid. Homosexuality is a sin, or you eat, you have some prawns and shellfish the other day for dinner? No. Not the civil. Not the ceremonial. Those laws are fulfilled in Christ, though they do serve as, as rules of righteousness uh, for us, unless completely abrogated under the New Covenant. But the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God, is the summary of the law that is written upon the heart of man and woman. Disagree with me about it afterwards. Right? God writes his laws upon the minds and the hearts. It goes from external to internal. From tablets of stone to the heart, our very center of being. That's what the writer of Proverbs is getting at in Proverbs 4.23, which says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Writing the laws upon the springs of life causes transformation. This is all a fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel 36 where it says in verse 27, it says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is, is open uh, to, to the promptings of God. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In Ezekiel 36, the new covenant is better <clears throat> because God writes his laws upon the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is better because the Holy Spirit morally transforms God's people through the writing of God's law upon their hearts. And so therefore there is an actual ability to keep the law. 
That's what we need, right? An actual ability to keep God's law. An actual ability to live a holy life. I think it's important to realize that the Ten Commandments were given specifically to the people of Israel in a very specific covenant. They nevertheless were based on who God is and what he requires for righteous living in his creation. Which is why, despite the old covenant being obsolete, Jesus says, himself summarizes the law and the great commandment as being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't do away with it. That is a summary of the two tablets of the law. And I would argue that the law of God does not simply arrive with Moses. Both the the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, you guys, there's actually representatives from both teams here. You can have a face-off in the foyer afterwards. Um, Right, But in, in chapter 19 uh, of those confessions, they both say exactly the same thing. And they make the point, and I agree with it, that Adam, by virtue of being made in the image of God, had that law written perfectly on his heart. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and by a particular law of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him and all of his children to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience and promised him life upon its fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of this law and gave him the power and ability to keep it. That's what humanity was before the fall. It's given the law of God. Adam wasn't going around murdering and committing adultery and all those kind of things because he had the law written on his heart and he had the power to keep it. A life pleasing to God. After sin entered, the power to keep the law and the ability to keep it perfectly is lost. But then there remains a sense in which we as created image bearers, a piece of that image, a piece of that law, is still there. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Perhaps a a confusing piece to, to many, but he says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a very real sense in which there is a remnant of that law written upon the heart, upon the hearts of people. And that comes right back from creation. But if we tie those two things together, we see something beautiful. 
When Jesus Christ saves a man or a woman, he saves us as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. The writing of the law in the heart and mind is therefore really a recreating of the image of God and helps us to live a life that is more in tune with how we were created. And that's who Jesus is, the the second Adam, the perfect human, the one who lived a righteous obedience life that Adam had failed to do. So growth in Christ-likeness and love is actually making us more truly human, even though we still struggle with sin. And then there's a promise of the removal of all of that sin at the end. That is a great thing. Having the law written upon our hearts is helping us not become Ned Flanders, but making us become more like Christ and just more like the type of person that God created us to be in the beginning. It is a great, wonderful thing. And it is done by the internalizing of the law of God. I want to make two points of application. Firstly, this helps us understand the difference between the Old and the New Covenant, and there's lots in the Bible about the Old Covenant, and therefore we should understand them rightly. The Apostle Paul brings this out in 2 Corinthians, which is another reason why I have no problem saying the New Covenant is for the Christian church. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3.3, You show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Isn't that Apostle Paul just applying the promises of the new covenant? And then in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, a few verses later, he says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Both old and new covenants have law. And I think that's important for us to remember. Some people say the old covenant had law, new covenant just grace, and therefore... There's no law involved at all. It says, no, both covenants have law. The problem, though, with the old covenant was that that external law gave no power to obey and therefore only brought condemnation. That's what it means where it says, for the letter kills. I I saw saw a graphic the other day, like in that very nice, floral, pretty Instagram kind of mode, and it was the terms of the Old Covenant just in Instagram pictures, and it says, do this and live, keeping the commandments of God and you shall live, and I thought, like, do you not realize that it's, like, impossible um, and, and, and horrific news? Um, and we have such a low view of the law of God. We cannot keep it perfectly, and it says breaking it brings death. But under the terms of the New Covenant, God's law is implanted by the Holy Spirit in the subjects of Christ's kingdom rule. And so we see 
There is law in both, but law is necessary for us to direct to direct our Christian lives. But it is not the fuel that gives us the ability to keep the Christian life and to live the Christian life. Because when we see the four covenant promises as a whole, we see the fourth promise and that there has been a gracious provision for our law-breaking and our continual law-breaking. We see it there in verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Grace is what empowers us to seek to live the Christian life. If that fourth promise did not exist, if there was no promise to remember our iniquities and our sins no more, you would just have the law written upon your heart, but you've still got a fleshly body and you've still got the ability to sin. Not one person here has lived perfectly this week. And it would crush us. The new covenant would not be good because we'd say, oh, I've got the law planted upon your heart, now go do it. And they go, what if I fail? You failed. That's why we need that fourth promise. We need grace to keep us going. So we believe the gospel. We now seek to, to live that righteous life. We seek to love God. We seek to love neighbor. We fail at that. Oh, we remember the gospel and we keep going. And that is how he has set it up to live. This helps us to see why the new covenant is better and does not get broken in the same way that the old covenant does. So it helps us to see the difference between the two covenants. Secondly, this verse helps us to rightly understand the place of the law in the Christian life. And this is important. Some people divorce law and the gospel. They divorce them entirely. This verse destroys that idea, and it destroys the idea that the Christian is free to live however they want. Right? We call that antinomianism, against the law, antinomos. It is the idea that we just operate entirely without law. Some people have that view of the Christian life. We've just got grace. We've got no, no law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor and yourself is law. It's calling you to do something. I will remember your sins and your iniquities no more. It's not law. It is gospel. It is a gospel promise because it is something that is done for us by God. There's a difference. We're not against the law. How do you confess sin if you don't know what God's law is, what God requires? We do not divorce law and gospel. In fact, we cannot. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. This also destroys the very popular idea that Jesus Christ can be your Savior, but not your Lord. 
Some people say that Jesus Christ can be your Savior and not your Lord because they have a contractual understanding of, of salvation rather than a covenant understanding. And they say, well, for God to require any form of obedience is a work, and therefore, because we're saved by faith and by grace, then that can't happen. Well, they're wrong because Jesus Christ does not give us the new contract. He gives us the new covenant, and He is Savior and Lord, and He gives us the promises that are received by faith. We're not saved by our keeping of God's law. If we were the new covenant would cease to be a covenant of grace and it would destroy the gospel. We do not merge law and gospel together and create gospel because that is a terrible thing. Because all of that is, is, is hopeless. James says in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is why we need the new covenant. I need to know I will remember your sins and your iniquities no more. Because in having the law written upon my heart, I'm seeking to now live a life pleasing to God. I'm seeking to live a more loving life, but I'm going to fail every single day. Baptism as the sign of inclusion into the new covenant community shows us that it is the work of Christ through his death and resurrection that saves us. But what this promise here, this first promise of the new covenant does tell us is that God saves his people by grace as a gift through faith in Christ, to then live holy lives in accordance with his law. And when we fail, we repent and believe. And when we succeed, we don't get arrogant. We instead boast in Christ, who is the one who's given us the ability to do so. The law is written on our hearts, not for us to earn forgiveness, but because we already have it in Christ. We already have that forgiveness. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to trying. It's opposed to merit, which is trying to earn God's favor. So let me close with this. Based on this first promise, based on the fourth promise, based on the promises of the new covenant, how now shall we live? And I think the answer is, that we go into the world under grace, knowing that our sin is forgiven, knowing that our shame is removed, knowing that our guilt has been paid for 2,000 years ago at the cross, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit seek to, to love God and to love those around us as God has called us to do, promising that this kingdom rule of Christ will spread across the world as far as, as far as the curse is found. And that there will be a fully new creation where all injustice and wickedness and unrighteousness will be gone. And that is what we look forward to. And that is what we have called to be a part of.
And that is a great, wonderful thing. And that covenant will not fail because it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray.